Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about world affairs and the people who shape it. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch, and in this show we discuss topical global issues and have in-depth conversations with personalities in foreign policy. Global Dispatches is presented in partnership with Humanity in Action, an international educational organization, and I am a Humanity in Action senior fellow. In 2013, the government of Australia enacted a highly controversial policy of sending any refugee or migrant who arrives by boat to detention centers in Papua New Guinea or the remote island nation of Nauru, and they do so without exception. My guest today, Daniel Webb, is an Australian lawyer who is fighting that policy. Daniel is Director of Legal Advocacy at Australia's Human Rights Law Center, and he represents asylum seekers who are stranded indefinitely in Nauru and in Papua New Guinea. In 2016, Daniel helped lead a campaign called Let Them Stay, which petitioned the government to allow a few hundred of these asylum seekers who are transported from these islands to Australia for medical treatment to remain in the country. For his work on behalf of these asylum seekers, Daniel was one of three recipients of the 2017 Global Pluralism Award. The award, and I'm quoting here, celebrates the extraordinary achievements of organizations, individuals, and governments who are tackling the challenge of living peacefully and productively with diversity. The award was conferred by the Global Pluralism Center, which is a partnership between the government of Canada and the Aga Khan, and he, if you are not aware, is a religious leader and philanthropist and head of the NGO, the Aga Khan Development Network. He and the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Canada were on hand to present this award at a ceremony in Ottawa a couple months ago, and I was in the audience, and after seeing Daniel's acceptance speech and learning more about his work, I knew I had to get him on the show so he could tell you this powerful story. It's an important conversation that I think shines a light on a profoundly unjust, ongoing situation. Before we begin, just want to say Happy New Year to everyone. If you're listening to this contemporaneously, this is the first episode of 2018, and I am very excited for what we have in store for the podcast in 2018. We have some interesting new content partnerships with some interesting organizations that will be kicking off this year that I'm very excited to introduce when the time is right. And stay tuned for that. We really do have some great content coming up in the next few weeks and, and few months. And so I'm very, very excited about what is to come for this podcast in the new year. And now here is my conversation with Daniel Webb. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Ah, I mean, look, it was it was bittersweet in a way. On a personal level, doing this work um, is tough, seeing the things that I see on a daily basis and the toll that 
my government's actions and decisions take on innocent human beings. That that's tough work, and and to have that recognised, of course, it's a really proud moment and something I'm grateful for. But the award um, is also international recognition of the awfulness of what we're fighting against. I mean, it's recognition that what the Australian government is doing, what what successive Australian governments have done to innocent people seeking asylum is awful and, and um, you know, is of international concern to the extent that there is a clear and deserved rising tide of global condemnation being directed our way. So so let's talk a little bit about that situation. I think some listeners will be aware of the Manus Island and Nauru and the detention facilities there, but could you just sort of introduce them, introduce us to what's happening? What what are these places? Why were they set up? Sure. Well, since, since about mid-2013, it has been bipartisan policy in Australia that anyone and everyone arriving in our country by boat and seeking asylum is automatically locked up and automatically deported to indefinite detention on the islands of Manus, which is in Papua New Guinea, or Nauru, which is the world's smallest republic, an island of 21 square kilometres. And so for the last four and a half years, there have been 2,000 innocent people warehoused in conditions that the United Nations have repeatedly um, said breach basic conditions, basic standards of humane treatment. And one of the awful aspects of these policies is that there are no exceptions. So, so gay men have been sent to Papua New Guinea, a country that criminalises consensual sex between men. Um, pregnant women and children have been indefinitely detained on Nauru. There are families who have been permanently ripped apart just because they arrived in Australia on separate dates. So these are policies that are that they're cruel by design. Their idea is to treat people who arrive in Australia and seek asylum in a manner that is calculated to frighten away anyone else who's thinking of coming, but they are made even crueler by the blunt and arbitrary way that they're being implemented. Well, so so it is arbitrary. It's not just anyone who arrives by boat is automatically sent there. Well, that it, it is anyone, anyone and everyone who arrives by boat is automatically locked up and automatically deported. And I mean, I, I've 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 met people where you know part of the family they, these policies came into effect in July 2013, and I, I've met um, I've met families who fled the same persecution at the same time, but arrived just either side of that date, just either side of that date. And part of the family is locked up indefinitely offshore, and the other part of the family is rebuilding their lives in the Australian community. And you would think, you know, sure, we get that this is a a deterrence regime. We get that these are policies um, specifically designed to frighten people away. But surely there's some space for just some common sense and some basic flexibility in the way you implement these policies. But it is, I mean, sadly, that's not the case. Um, Both sides of politics have said 
no exceptions, mandatory detention and mandatory deportation. Why by boat? This has always been my sort of question. Why not sort of deport people who overstay their visas should they arrive by plane? What's the thinking there? Well, look, there's a lot of factors at play there. Um, As an island nation, Australia has always had this kind of deep anxiety about its borders. Um, There's also the fact that, uh, you know, in a very very closely contested um, election in 2001, um, uh, just after September 11 in the United States, um, the one side of politics very cynically and very desperately exploited that fear and anxiety about borders um, to to vilify and 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 stoke fear of refugees who arrive by boat. And since that moment, um, you know that this debate in Australia has been poisoned. It's been poisoned with with toxicity. Um, about borders and boats and terror. Uh, and, and once that kind of genie is let out of the bottle, once a debate is contaminated in that way and people's greatest fears and insecurities have been exploited like that, it, it takes a long time to undo that damage. And and that um, that's where we find ourselves in Australia right now. Well, and, and that's interesting to me because... You know, as you mentioned earlier, this is a a bipartisan thing where, you know, more right-leaning and more left-leaning governments have um, implemented this policy, including Kevin Rudd, who's been on this, you know, program before. And he's generally like a liberal guy, yet Mm. um, you have, you know, it was under his government that this policy was first enacted. That's right. And look, um, former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd was the Prime Minister who closed these offshore detention camps when he first took office and in a desperate attempt, in a last-ditch attempt to salvage his prospects at the next election, at his next election, he reopened them again. And so we've got this awful and self-perpetuating cycle in Australia where every time there's an election, you've got one side of politics who just wants to exploit this issue and another side of politics that desperately wants to neutralise it by agreeing with everything that the other side proposes. And that creates this sort of perpetual race to the bottom. And, you know, frankly, I meet with a lot of people from both sides of politics and on a personal level, I have no doubt that they are deeply uncomfortable with what they are doing to innocent human beings. But they sort of say, look, these are the political realities. Um, There is sadly political capital in being cruel to this group of people. Good luck with your advocacy efforts to shift that. Um, So can you tell me a little bit more about what these camps are are like? Who is there? Like what nationalities are preponderant in in these um, detention facilities? Look, I've been over to Manus Island three times. My first trip, my first inspection of the detention centre there was almost four years ago. It was just after an Iranian asylum seeker named Reza Barati was murdered. Um, He was murdered by contractors that the Australian government 
essentially paid to help keep him safe. Um, and it was an awful scene. I mean, uh, uh, everywhere I walked, there'd, there'd just been some some shocking riots there where PNG police had gone into That's the Papua centre. That's Papua New Guinea, PNG. Papua, Papua, yeah. Papua New Guinea police had, had gone into the centre with guns literally blazing. And everywhere I walked in, in this place, I, I met men who would point out the bullet holes and show me their injuries and describe their fears. It was an awful and devastating scene to witness. But the thing that caused these men the most anguish was the uncertainty. They didn't know if they were going to be there for a week or a month or a year or for the rest of their lives. They didn't know if they would ever see their families again. They didn't know if they would ever get a chance to build a life in freedom and in safety. And one of the men said that that uncertainty was like mental torture. He said, you know, waking up every morning in this environment and not knowing if or when it will ever end, that's like mental torture. And there's been a whole range of kind of changes in the four years since. The fences have changed. They've kind of been shunted from one facility to another, but that fundamental uncertainty remains. They still wake up every morning in that same painful limbo that has confronted them every morning for the last four and a half years. And that is just an awful, awful way to treat an innocent human being. And and it's worth pointing out that Australia is, is obviously very, you know, is still trying to, to keep them out and doing what they can to keep them out. You know, this became a, a minor political issue here in the United States when shortly after Donald Trump's inauguration, he had a phone call with Malcolm Turnbull and, you know, the transcript of this call was leaked. It started out friendly, but then turned sour when Turnbull reminded Trump that the United States had pledged to take a certain number of these asylum seekers to the United States for resettlement. And Trump, you know, said, no way. Yeah. What was fascinating about that transcript for me was that you heard our prime minister acknowledging that, that, that the people he is warehousing on Manus or Nauru, you know, include exceptional human beings with a huge amount to offer. He's effectively saying, you know, Mr. President, look, you could have the next Nobel Prize winner detained in these camps. That's we right. know everything there is about them. They're exceptional people. It's just our nation has this pathological problem with boats. And 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 it was kind of fascinating to see him confess that. And, of course, it's a fear and anxiety that is politically exploited in a very self-serving way. But it was fascinating to see our Prime Minister admit that, you know, these are people, these are innocent people. Because Trump was like calling them criminals or terrorists or something, and and Turnbull's like, no, no, these these, these are good. We we like these people. We just don't want to let them in our country. Yeah, Exactly. We know everything about them, and they've got a huge amount to contribute. We just can't let them make that contribution because, you know, we've, we've... tapped into this fear about boats, and now we can't undo it. Um, so we're speaking at the end of 2017. How many people are, are we talking about still trapped in, in these uh, detention facilities on these two two islands? Well, there's about there's about um, six to 700 on Manus Island, and there's about 11 to 1,200 
um, on Nauru. And, you know, precise numbers are hard to come by because transparency is a real um, it, it's not it's not uh, a strength of these arrangements, put it that way. There is a, a pretty strong and impenetrable veil of secrecy that has been built around um, these facilities. But, yeah, still after four and a half years, there are almost 2,000 people um, languishing in limbo. And and what's the what nationalities are, are we talking about? You said Iran. Does Iran make up the like a plurality of them? Uh, some from Iran, many Rohingya from Myanmar, um, some uh, people from Afghanistan, Iraq, Sri Lanka, parts of Africa, some Syrians. Um, so you know the, the countries, uh, all, all countries that sadly um, produce refugees um and and the overwhelming majority of the men on manus and the children and the families on nauru were assessed to be genuine refugees their claims for protection were accepted years ago um so there's no denying that the bulk of these people um fled their homes because they were forced to and uh deserve um protection and deserve a chance to get on with rebuilding their lives. And and now they it, it's basically indefinite that they're there. There's no prospect for third country resettlement in Australia, at least in this current political environment, seems not likely to take them anytime soon. Well, no, that's right. So the Australian government um, would disagree with, with your proposition. They'd say, oh, look, we've got this deal with the United States and it's all sweet with Trump, you know, we've, we've smoothed it over and... But the United States, at best, yeah. is only going to take 1,250 people. At best, there's still going to be close to 1,000 left behind. There is no plan for where they go. And even with this US deal, it's more than a year. where It's, it's, it's almost exactly a year since this deal was announced. We know that Donald Trump hates it. We know that only 54 people have actually received safety under this deal in the United States. And there are hundreds that haven't even had an initial screening interview with US officials. So, you know, as much as the Australian government says, ah, oh, look, it's not indefinite, we've got a plan, the the best proof is in the pudding and it's not great. So I'd love to learn how you got involved in this issue. What was your your entry point here? Uh, well, look, I um, worked at Legal Aid for a long time. So I think um, it's a similar system in, in many parts of the world where it's um, a legal service for people who can't afford to pay a lawyer. Mm-hmm. And I um, worked on the front line and I loved that work. It was it was it was rewarding and valuable to meet people and provide them with a direct legal service when you knew they couldn't get it get it anywhere else people who were facing eviction into homelessness or um, um, receiving treatment against their will or um, you know being discriminated against in in the workplace it was it was incredibly valuable work but over time I thought well as 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 rewarding as it is, to try and achieve some measure of justice within a system, I want to try working on the system. And so I moved into my current role at at, at, um, 
Australia's leading human rights NGO, the Human Rights Law Centre, which focuses on change at systemic levels. Um, and and well, I, can, I started. Can I ask with, you? Was there a, a moment um, in your in your career as as a public defender? I suppose we would call it here in the United States, or um, where you realized that you wanted to make this switch? Was there like a case that you tried? Um, where you you thought that wow this is this is you no know, not just an individual I can save but I need to make sort of whole systemic changes. I think I think the potential for and need for systemic change. I mean, it, it slaps you in the face every day when you're on the front line when you walk through an immigration detention centre and you help an individual apply for refugee status and you see the conditions that you're det- that they're detained in and when you see the toll that takes on them. Of course, there's value in helping that one person, but the need to fundamentally overhaul the system that sees them indefinitely imprisoned for nothing, I mean, that is ever-present. You see it in every one of those interactions. And, And so for me, it was inevitable that at some point I was going to make that transition. Um, and when I did, when I moved into this new job um, at, at, at the Human Rights Law Centre, an organisation that focuses on change at that systemic level, right at that time, Australia began locking refugees up offshore. And so, um, you know, immediately that became the issue of, of, of greatest injustice in my country. It became It became the context in which we had most betrayed our moral compass as a nation and that issue very quickly pulled me in and I've never been able to put it down since. What was it about that issue that that uh, sort of pulled you in would you say? Have you ever identified like one moment where you realized that this this is the issue that I need to devote my my time for for the next several years perhaps the rest of your life? I, I get that I get that you know one moment question a bit and I, I'd love to be able to offer one but um you know, I feel like it would be artificial for me to do that because really the truth is it's just a value set. You know, I believe that um, that all people, whoever they are and wherever they come from, deserve a certain measure of decency and respect. And, and that value is at the heart of human rights law. And I guess holding that value is is a big part of what engages me as a human rights lawyer. And there is no context in my country right now where we have lost sight of that value than than um, the way we're treating refugees. Have you ever sort of thought about sort of where that value where it was instilled in you? I mean, growing up, I mean, were you did you grow up in like a progressive household? Did you did you have these kinds of conversations about human rights as as a kid? Um, my parents are both teachers, uh, and part of my childhood was that um, we moved around a lot, and I got to live in, in a lot of really different places. We lived in um, a remote Aboriginal community in Central Australia. We lived in um, a farming community in the, the southwest of Australia, in the Wheat Belt. We lived um, in a in in the far northwest, and we lived in um, in in a big city. So, I guess throughout my childhood. Um, I got to meet uh, people from all walks of life and um, uh, on some level both that and through the value set of my parents was instilled in me just a clear sense that a a person is a person Um, and, and, you know, there's things that they deserve 
by virtue of the fact that they are human. And those things are, you know, a basic measure of decency and respect. And I think on some level it's that value that has pulled me in this direction. Um, and, and I should also say, you know, when, when, when um, that sense of social justice and human rights was really sharpened was when I was at university. Um, and I, um, I, I, I did some work in Cambodia um, with communities facing forced evictions from their land. Um, I did some work in Papua New Guinea where I saw shocking violence against women and, and, and public sector corruption. Um, and and it, it kind of opened my eyes to the power of the law as a, as a transformative tool for change. Um, and it showed me that, you know, what I am most engaged by uh, are people and, and um, circumstances in which people are not receiving, are being deliberately denied the basic minimum standards that they deserve as human beings. And, and that compelled you to, to the legal aid uh, position, I would imagine. Absolutely. Absolutely. So how long were you doing the legal aid before you um, decided to make the, the switch in, into advocacy work? Um, I was at legal aid for about five years, and I also spent a year as the people's lawyer in the Republic of Kiribati. So for those who don't know, uh, Kiribati is a, a group of 30 or so coral atolls in the Pacific, a population of about 100,000 people. Um, and it's a common law system, but the administration of it in, 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 a, in a country, you know, dispersed over so many islands is a real challenge. And part of my job as the people's lawyer was to accompany the High Court on circuit at islands, and that was fascinating. We would fly in with the judge and with a couple of lawyers to this island where people had been waiting for, for a few years to have their inherent personal disputes resolved. You know, there might be a, about a land boundary or something like that, and we would fly in and do their case in a language they didn't speak on the basis of legal principles that they may not have a lot of familiarity with or engagement with. The court would make its decision on the spot and we would then leave, and it, it always uh, it, it humbled me, and um, and uh, amazed me that people still embraced the authority of that system. It always struck me that the law in that kind of situation was was so precariously placed, and so your responsibility as a lawyer to support the system. Real passion, um, and it was a, a, a fascinating and, and very challenging experience of being a lawyer. When I saw you receive the uh, award in honor of the Global Pluralism Award, uh, much of the award was conferred upon you for your work on the uh, Let Them Stay campaign. What were the circumstances that gave rise to that campaign? What was that uh, all about? Well, look, um, we, uh, we assisted a group of people who had been evacuated from these offshore detention camps on Nauru and Manus and brought to Australia for urgent medical treatment. So we assisted women who'd been sexually assaulted on Nauru, men who'd been shot at and beaten on Manus, and children who were, were so traumatised by what they'd seen and been exposed to in offshore detention that they needed psychiatric treatment. 
in Australia. And, and so and you, at the, at, you at the Human Rights Law Center were able yes. to, to sort of find a loophole that would enable them to leave the island for medical treatment? Well, no, they were, they were brought back by the Australian government as part of its duty of care and responsibility to people it is holding. It, they were brought back by the Australian government for medical treatment. And when they were here, um, our goal, you know, they, they asked us, please make sure we are not sent back to that environment that has already caused us so much harm. And also within that group um, were, were, were 37 babies who were born in Australia because their mothers were brought to Australia from Nauru to give birth mm. due to the inadequate medical facilities inside the detention centre. So we acted for this group of 267 people, including 37 babies who were born in Australian hospitals, kids who had never seen a boat in their life but yet were classified under Australian law as if they arrived on one. Mm. So as lawyers, we filed a series of cases in the highest court in our country, the High Court of Australia, to try and stop these people from being sent back to harm. Can, can I ask, once, um, you know, under US law, of course, if you're born in the United States, you, you are American. Is that the same in Australian law? Or are there sort of um, contingencies? So, so um one one uh, sort of very vivid demonstration of the absurdity and the sort of lost perspective um, in the way Australia approaches this issue is that children whose parents arrived on a boat and sought asylum, children born in Australia, are still classified as if they arrived on a boat, even if they've never seen one, um, and that would that would be laughable. I mean, it's absurd. These children did not arrive on a boat. They were born maybe in the same hospital as me. Um, but it would almost be laughable, their classification as a boat arrival, trigger such serious consequences. Because under Australian law, if you arrive by boat, or if the law deems you to have arrived by boat, it is mandatory that you are detained and mandatory that you are deported. Mm. So children born in Melbourne Hospital are classified as an unauthorised maritime arrival, locked up and deported. And we acted for 37 babies in that situation. Um, and so those <clears throat> those uh, asylum seekers reached out to you or, or, or your, your organisation and you essentially represented them as your clients? That's right. We filed cases in, in the highest court in the country to prevent their deportation. And the case, the cases argued a few things, but essentially they said, you know, of course our government has the power to lock people up in Australia. And yes, our government has the power to deport people from Australia, but there is nothing in Australian law that gives our government the power to detain innocent people in other countries. Um, and, and that was the legal argument. We, we were essentially saying you cannot deport these people to detention that you have no power to implement, to unlawful detention. And in response to that case, the government, with support of the opposition, retrospectively amended the law to give themselves that authority. 
So for the first time in Australian history, I don't think there's ever been a law like this, they retrospectively authorised three years' worth of detention of thousands of innocent people in two other countries. It was an extraordinary and regressive legislative step. And so we adapted our legal arguments to challenge the validity of that law. But then on the eve of the High Court hearing, the gates to the detention centre on Nauru opened. So, of course, publicly, the Australian government said, oh, that's just a coincidence, the fact that the gates to the detention centre have opened oh, three years me- meaning, after. We- meaning that people who are there are free to leave if they really want to, to go elsewhere that's on the right. island? Uh, that's okay. right. So it's not really like a prison. It's just, yeah, yeah okay, I see what you're saying. That, exactly. So so we, we, challenged, we challenged, we said, you've got no power to participate in this detention. They retrospectively gave themselves that power. We challenged that retrospective law, adapted our arguments to challenge that law. So they opened the gates on the eve of the High Court hearing. And of course, publicly, they said, it's just a coincidence, you know, that that the independent sovereign nation of Nauru has just spontaneously decided to open the gates on a Sunday evening. Um, But in court, they argued that the detention our clients were complaining about no longer existed. So we knew, you know, we knew because of the sort of shifting goalposts and the retrospective changes to the law and the last minute changes to the facts, we knew we were going to lose. We knew we knew that the law alone would not be enough to ensure the freedom and safety of these 267 people. So we thought, you know what, um, if, if the Australian community could see the things we've seen, if they could see these 37 babies, if they could see these parents saying, you know, please just ensure my child gets what every child in the world deserves, and that's, you know, a chance at life in freedom and safety. If the Australian community could see that, they wouldn't stand back and let our government deport these families. And so we said, you know what, we're going to wait for the court decision And then when that court decision comes, we're going to expose the truth. And we put photos of these 37 babies on the front pages of newspapers around the country. We said, these are the children that our government is fighting to deport to a life in limbo on a tiny island. I mean, these are kids, these are babies who deserve a chance at a decent life. And with the stroke of a pen, our government could give them that. But instead, they're going to put them on a plane and consign them to a life in limbo behind a fence on a tiny island. And and, and can I ask, like, prior to that moment, I mean, was the image of these asylum seekers um, sort of shaped by, like, the Murdoch media landscape? You know, like, they're sort of these kind of dark, evil foreigners who are going to infiltrate our, our country kind of thing in, in a way that sort of the, I don't know, is it like Sky News probably down there, it'd be Fox News here, um, would, would sort of portray people in this kind of situation? Well, I, I think what I, what I can say is that um, for a generation, this issue has been poisoned by a lot of toxic white noise about borders and boats. I mean, we we used to have a Department of Immigration 
and citizenship and a Department of Immigration and Multicultural Affairs. We now have a Department of Immigration and Border Protection who lead a policy called Operation Sovereign Borders with the policy objective being stop the boats and they have established an Australian border force and you know there's a lot of scary words in all of that well i've, I've seen i've that, seen the billboard that's been in uh, i think it was it was flying in, in iraq or syria of like a, a scary uh ocean scene with boats toppling and australian flags saying do not come here yeah and what, yeah. what's fascinating about that poster is if you have a close look at the boat there's no people on it <laughs> there's no people on it so you listen to all of those words i just said before and you look at that poster of a boat with no people on it and you get some sense of the sustained effort of both sides of politics to remove any reference to humanity from a policy debate that is fundamentally about people. And the power of the Let Them Stay campaign, the power of those front page stories with those photos of babies was that undeniably that moment became about people. So we didn't shift the public's values. We didn't, you know, um, make Australians care about something they didn't previously care about. We just changed the question they were being asked. In that moment, they weren't being asked about borders or boats. They were being asked about babies. They were being asked about people and what those people, you know, what is a fair and reasonable way to treat a person. And by asking a different question, we got a resoundingly different answer. People took to the streets. Churches around Australia offered sanctuary to people at risk of deportation. Um, State premiers, so... um, you know, the, the equivalent of governors in, in, in the United States spoke out in support of letting these people stay. I mean, at sporting events, there was a, a soccer game in Sydney where rival fans at opposite ends of the field on the, on the 37th minute mark of the game started chanting, let them stay. I mean, the, 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 the transformation of this debate from one about borders and boats to one about people uh, generated an incredible uh, community response and a massive shift in the public's thinking. And and so what what became then of this so this humanizing effort by or this effort by by your group and, and others to humanize the victims of this policy had a sort of a societal uh, transformation. But were the 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 babies and were the two hundred and sixty was it two sixty seven people in, allowed to to eventually stay? Yeah, they were. They absolutely were. And so we have this situation where a few days before the High Court was to deliver its judgment, this was in January last year, our Immigration Minister, Peter Dutton, came out and and he bristled. He he spoke to the nation's media and he said, "You, you mark my words, within weeks, all of these people are going to be back um, offshore. You know, they're scamming the system. They're going to be back offshore within weeks. And here we are close to two years later, and every single one of them are still here, and they are rebuilding their lives in our community. And what underpins that is for the first time in a long time, this toxic political debate 
became about them. It became about human beings, not about, you know, all of this uh, poisonous stuff about, you know, borders and boats. Well, well, can I ask then, I mean, as a response, has the government um, reduced the number of people it allows uh, to come to the Australia for emergency, you know, medical treatment? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and um, we've seen, uh, you know, they, they, still, they still are often left with no choice. I mean, men are still being attacked and, and, and beaten to within an inch of their life on, on Manus Island and women are still being sexually assaulted on Nauru and, and children are still suffering serious harm. So they are still bringing people back to Australia for medical treatment because they have no choice. But one thing they've taken to doing is leaving part of the family behind. So we have some situations where a child is sick or, or a mum is sick and they will bring mum and the child to Australia and they'll leave dad on Nauru as a, as a means of, of coercing, mm-hmm. as a means of pressuring mum and the child um, to return. So it's essentially saying to them, choose mm-hmm. between fighting for your freedom and being with your family and and it's a it's a you know it 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 saddens me that um that that our government um would make decisions about uh people's basic rights um sort of through this this notion that they're like pawns on a chessboard that that you maneuver them around in a way that gives you the greatest tactical advantage mm-hmm. rather than sort of saying well they're people and we are going to um make decisions based on what is fair and what is lawful and what best respects their right to sort of decent standards of of medical treatment and humane treatment so if the let them stay campaign was so successful in reversing government policy enabling you know over 200 people to stay which i take it as like about 10 percent of the population that was in these detention centers in the first place which is you know significant then how or why has that sort of social movement, that social transformation that's taken place in Australia not impacted policy further? Well, the interesting thing, I mean, we, we've tried similar advocacy strategies um, for the people who are still held offshore. So I went uh, on my most recent trip to Manus. I just went to meet with the men and prepare some sort of stories about who they are and what they miss and what they hope for and what they're passionate about. And there are some extraordinary human beings over there, some some extraordinary, talented, resilient people. And we've done the same thing. We've, we've brought to the surface who they are and what stories they have to tell. But the difference is that with the Let Them Stay campaign and that group of people, the government backing down and doing nothing was enough for us to have to achieve victory. Hmm. The government just doing nothing was victory. But for the group of people offshore, we need them to proactively do something. And we have, frankly, much less leverage there. Hmm. I mean, with the, with the Let Them Stay campaign, the government knew and the government knows that if it tries anything, if it tries to deport any one of that group, hundreds of others will seek sanctuary 
in the nearest church. State premiers will come out and condemn them. Um, you know, we had a situation where the the government was planning to deport a child and her family who were in hospital in Brisbane back to Nauru, and the community blockaded the hospital and doctors refused to discharge the child. Mm. So when, when those people were in Australia, that public support um, could exert a kind of pressure that, that is much harder to generate when people are offshore. So, so can I ask, we're, we're just about out of time, what's next for you? What's next for uh, your work in, in, in this regard to, to, to you know, advocate on behalf of the rights of the, the detainees? Uh, well, look, there's, there's a lot. Um, there's a lot. The, the, the battle to keep, we, we now act for, for 400 people, the battle to keep them in Australia continues. Um, we uh, will continue to amplify the voices of those who are still languishing on Nauru and Manus. But a really interesting development in the next few years is that um, on the 1st of January, Australia takes up its seat on the UN Human Rights Council. And, um, you know, Australia has a lot to offer as a member of the council. We, we, we have a good story to tell about many things. But, I mean, the reality is that, that as much as our government will want to kind of strut its stuff and, and, and look the part and spruik its human rights credentials on the world stage, it is going to lack credibility and moral authority on human rights until it stops deliberately mistreating innocent people seeking asylum. So a big part of our work is going to be holding them accountable and saying, you know, this is the issue that rightly, that rightly will haunt you wherever you go around the globe. This is going to be the thing that people will ask you about because it so clearly betrays who you are and who we ought to be as a nation. And, and so I think that and, international... Well, well do you think the government is, is susceptible to that kind of pressure? I mean, for, at the Human Rights Council, you know, when they take up their seat at the Human Rights Council uh, and other countries chastise them for their hypocrisy because of this issue, is that sufficient to, to move policy, you think? Um, I, I think it exerts significant pressure. Yeah, I think... I think um, uh, the Australian government will, will take up its seat on the council with an agenda, with a foreign policy agenda, with a diplomatic agenda, with a human rights agenda, and its ability to achieve it, its, its capital to achieve it, will be diminished because it doesn't have its own house in order. I mean, it will not be able to command the kind of authority and respect it wants while it continues after four and a half years to warehouse 2,000 innocent people in awful conditions on remote islands. Uh, well, Daniel, thank you so much for your time. This was, this was really interesting. Oh, well, thank you for having me. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Daniel and also to the Aka Khan Development Network for inviting me to that award ceremony in which I got to meet Daniel and learn his story. Like I said at the outset, I knew once I saw his acceptance speech and learned a little bit about his work, I knew he'd be a great, great uh, interviewee conversationalist and, and have some really interesting stories to tell for this show. And uh, I, I am assured 
that you uh, appreciated that episode. As always, please feel free to get in touch with me if you have any questions or comments or want to suggest topics or people I should interview. Just go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and click on the contact link and we'll, we'll see you soon. Thanks. Bye. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of Humanity in Action.